It's time for episode 240 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. Clockwise, four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, or as we call it, the TikTok Tech Talk. I'm your co-host, Dan Morin, and I am joined across the internet by my co-host, Mr. Micah Sargent. Hi, Micah. How you doing? Hi, Dan. I'm going to need you to define we for me, because that's certainly not what I call it. Uh, well, I mean, you've only been here a year now, so I feel like Fair. it's time I can tell you what the <sighs> real name of the show is. Oh, no, it's its sacred name. Now that, I, <laughs> now that I know it, I have control over it. Yeah, it's, it's too dangerous. Well, this is, of course, the show where we invite on two wonderful guests to talk about technology topics. To my left this week, our very own co-founder and the co-host of so many podcasts that the list just goes on and on, including Liftoff. Jeez, um, Stephen Hackett, what other podcasts am I leaving out there? All right, I'm thinking in chronological order throughout my week. So we have Ungenius query lift off connected download and a new we- uh, new daily show called subnet so that's six thousand shows you got a lot of time left <laughs> in your schedule is what you're saying uh, it's a lot of stuff <laughs> a lot of stuff <laughs> and to my left is originality fm host app launch map proprietress i am just reading off of your bio because i don't want to forget <laughs> anything and of course a panelist at the incomparable it's the one and only the entirely awesome aline sims how you doing aline that was a really good ego boost i'm well how are you <laughs> oh just great thank you well, I'm going to kick things off today with our first topic. Uh, yesterday, Google I.O. did its keynote thing. Among the many announcements Google made was a feature still in development called Duplex, which provided sort of the most mind-blowing demo of the show, in which basically an AI makes a phone call to set up a hair appointment. And it does it by essentially imitating human speech right down to saying, uh, mm, inflections, all of that kind of great kind of creepy little bit of both i'm just curious about your general reactions to this feature and and what you see if you see this ending up being something that people actually use or whether this is just the downfall of humanity steven well i'm always gonna err on the side of the downfall of humanity (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah James Vincent at The Verge wrote this sentence in his article about it that's just perfect. It says, in other words, it was a typical Google demo, equal <laughs> parts wonder and worry. That really sums it up. Uh, but to actually answer the question, is this something that people want? I think, uh, to a degree, yes. I think people would like to have things taken care of for them, right? We all want more time back in our day. But this sort of thing has to be like 100% bulletproof or you're not going to trust it, right? If this thing goes out and, you know, the example is, you know, schedule a hair appointment or something, but what if it is, you know, scheduling service for your car or setting up something with the vet to take your dog or cat and like things that are more important than haircuts, more important than setting up a restaurant um, reservation. This thing needs to, to have it right. And I don't know how this plays out, like how much access to your, your data does it have? What happens when the human asks the assistant a question the assistant can't answer? Like, does it just say, hey, you know, I'm going to need to call you back? Or do you get notification and you get brought into the call, which would be kind of cool? That's how it works with human assistants, right? 
if mm-hmm. uh, if you know your assistant is on the phone with somebody and they need something from you, sometimes you get looped in. So I have lots of questions uh, and not not many answers at this point, other than downfall of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Uh, that's that's always the answer. Um, I so I have mixed feelings about this. Rest in peace. Um, this is an interesting idea, and there's a part of this that I think is made specifically for me and those like me with a little bit of uh, social anxiety that tends to creep in. Uh, the idea that I could just be like, "Yeah, I really don't want to cancel my Direct TV service because I know they're going to do that old song and dance where they try and convince me to uh, stick with them." So, you know, Google, could you handle that for me? Awesome, right? And the accessibility angle here too is uh, is fantastic. If if for some reason you know you're not able to uh, make those phone calls or, or or set up those appointments or anything like that, then to have this service available to you, it's fantastic. But again, for my own sort of social anxiety qualms. I know that something like this would be something that I would rely on and therefore would not work on being more sociable, being uh, less prone to sort of give in to my anxieties. And so this is like, this is one of those things that I would not want to use because I know I would absolutely use it. And then, I don't know, I'd show, show up at my hair appointment thinking I was just getting a haircut. And then I, I don't know, they, they turn around the, the, the chair I'm sitting in and I have blue hair. And that was not something that I wanted, all because the, the assistant heard something wrong. And that would be the lesson that I just need to go ahead and set my own hair appointments. Everyone knows that purple hair is the best <laughs> hair. I'm just saying. Um, I do love this um, for some of the reasons that Micah pointed out for the accessibility for people with um, severe social anxiety, for people you know who are hard of hearing, for busy parents. I think it's awesome. I think it's great technology. I am worried, though. We are already living in an age where scam calls are happening all the time. And I just have concerns about this. Like we have this really natural language AI capable of calling people and telling them that, you know, I was reading a story this morning um, that Chinese immigrants are getting these calls and are getting swindled out of millions of dollars in some cases that they worked really hard to save um, because their immigration status is supposedly on the line, right? And they might be deported. And I just worry about kind of the worst of humanity getting their hands on this technology and what is going to happen with it. And I feel like it's uh, on Twitter. I, I paraphrased, you know, Jurassic Park a little bit. Like, so you, we're so preoccupied with figuring out whether we can do something. We're not thinking about whether we should do something. So yeah, cool. It, it can it can schedule this stuff for us. It can really help us out and take that load off. It can help people who need that for accessibility reasons, but doesn't need to be a, a really natural sounding assistant. And what are the trade-offs and how are people going to abuse that? And Google, are you thinking about that? Is that something you're really taking into consideration with this technology? You know, there's a good point I saw made in a couple places that if this is a thing that announces itself as a robot uh, or is obviously a robot, a lot of people will just hang up on it, which does make it tricky for sure. Uh, How do you walk that line? To me also, I feel like there's an inverse relationship between uh, the things I want this to do 
and the things it can do in terms of like the ki- the, the the calls I want it to handle are the ones so complicated it probably won't be able to handle. <laughs> um, mm. I can make reservations. I can make a haircut appointment, right? Like those are things that for me anyways are fairly low bar. Not for everybody, but for me. And so like for me that those wouldn't be things I get it. Like uh, Micah's example of sitting on hold with your cable provider for an hour is a different matter or calling your insurance company, right? Or any of these things that really are when you're just sitting there on hold for an hour. That's the kind of thing that you want to be able to offload to somebody else. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really interesting technology. Aline, you especially opened up a lot of the ways that this is is dangerous and sort of on that line, as, as technology often is, of providing a service versus being something that opens us up to new threats and new possibilities of misuse. Um, and so I hope Google is weighing those a lot, and I think there will probably be a lot of changes before this actually rolls out in a way that people can use it. But it's all, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Once this has come up, <laughs> it's going to happen sooner or later. Um, yeah. Thanks thanks for your thoughts on that. Let's go to topic number two. Stephen, what do you got for us? Uh, I think as it's well known, I'm a uh, computer history buff, and it doesn't get much much bigger than this week's 20th anniversary of the original iMac. That That blue curvy G3 that looked like a dinosaur egg or if you were Steve Jobs, like it was designed by people from another planet <laughs> um, in a world of, of beige boxes that ran Windows and, and the classic Mac OS. The iMac was a, a really big deal visually, but of course it also brought in new technology. It, it ditched all of the, the legacy ports for USB uh, and I think most importantly, it, it gave Apple the, the runway they needed to be successful to get to the OS X era, to get to the iPod, and and then, of course, after after that, just uh, taking off into being the Apple we know today. So a lot is owed to this little computer, uh, and I was just wondering how you guys felt about that. Is this something that that you know you, de- you see as important, or is this something silly that Jason Snell and I care about? <laughs> Um, well, let me go ahead and age myself a little bit. Uh, my, I remember this iMac uh, when I was in second grade. Oh, God. Uh, um, <laughs> so this and, and th- this iMac, like everybody, of course, was well, not everybody, but many people were not fond of that circular mouse, that, that dear mm. little puck. But as a second grader with tiny second grader hands... That little puck was awesome. And as a person who, like, we didn't have, you know, fancy computers at home with fun Mac games on them, things like that. And the look and feel of the computer was so much different that I can remember just, like, being absolutely in love with this machine. And it, if I remember correctly, like, by second grade, it was a little bit older for me. But the point is, I thought this little uh, contraption was so cool, and I loved the see-through look of it. And it was really, I think, my first um, foray into Apple products as a whole and something that, that stuck with me uh, as just – I just felt like – I was really into sea monkeys at the time, and it felt like a computer that a sea monkey would would have. You know what I mean? Like it had this bubbly, cool blue color, and I just felt like a little sea monkey, and it was awesome. So I think that, you know, uh, waxing, uh, I don't know, waxing happy about the past is, is really nice, and this computer still to this day 
deserves a special place in anyone who's an Apple fan's heart. Yeah, I didn't have one. I don't think I even used one, but I remember watching the commercials and being like, that is so cool. And kind of having a little bit of, I don't know, my mind was a little blown because like Steven said, a sea of beige boxes. And I remember the first time I saw one, I was like, wait, computers could be another color? Like It had just never occurred to me. We had we had beige. Um, and so I wanted one. And every once in a while, I'll see one. You know, there are some legacy systems or whatever, and you'll walk into a, a, a retail shop. And um, there was a place in Scottsdale, I remember, that had had an old iMac. Um because their point of sale system was that old and they couldn't upgrade. So um, every once in a while I see one and I'm like, oh, that is that is so cool. And I remember like begging my mom to get one as though we could afford it. But um, I, I think it's great. It was it was, of course, like so many things that that Apple has done. It was like a revelation, a revolution um, I sound like I'm quoting Hamilton at this point, um, but <laughs> it was it was amazing, and I'm I'm so glad it existed because it has um, it it enabled Apple to be the company it is today, which I have uh, a mostly love but occasional you know not hate but like super frustrated relationship with. Um, but I'm so glad it exists, and I'm so glad it's here, and I'm so glad that. Um, I, I get to have even like further down these friendships because in a way that iMac existed, I I think that's pretty cool. To also date myself, right around the time the iMac came out, I was finishing up my senior year of high school. And at that point, you know, I had been a diehard Mac user for seven or eight years. And it was it was a weird position to be in because it was that era of feeling like you were constantly under attack, right? Like so many of my friends had switched to Windows. Uh, so many of the devices I used, like when I did come across them, were Windows devices. And, you know, part of me felt like, oh, man, Apple's going like totally the opposite direction from where I'd expect them to go, right? Like we were all wanted more power. We wanted more competition with the Windows devices. And instead, they were going with this very simplified you know, toy-looking computer that didn't have a floppy drive, and it only had these weird USB ports. And I remembering at the time, like being being super worried about it. And Apple was in a position in that day and age when it was a constant source of worry whether or not it would be around, you know, six months hence. But looking back on it, you know, it really did pave the way for the Apple of today. As Lean was saying, uh, I can think of no greater testament than the fact that so many companies looked at this and decided the route to surefire success in the PC market was making a blue computer, right? Like, just that that totally superficial aspect is what they thought. And there was no better indication they had gotten it wrong, right? Like, this idea of, like, oh, we'll just make it blue. Blue plastic is why the iMac is selling. It's like, totally missed the point, guys. I, I think looking back on it, I have a lot more appreciation on it than I did at the time. Uh, and it really, if it were not for that, we wouldn't have the Apple of today. So... So I'm I'm in for celebrating. Let's I always like a good opportunity. Who brought cake? Steven, you bring cake? <laughs> the brilliance of the iMac was that it was an appliance, right? Like the original Mac was, where you could sit it down and plug it in and get on the internet really quickly because you, you weren't spending all your time plugging a bunch of stuff in or troubleshooting a bunch of things. It was all just sort of inclusive and all just worked out of the box. And that's something that Apple 
still strives for today with their desktops, um, even though, you know, the majority of Macs are sold as, as notebooks, which I guess are kind of like all in ones. So are themselves. smartphones and iPads, too, for that matter, really. Yeah. Well, thanks for that topic. We have reached halftime. And to tell you about today's halftime sponsor, I'll turn it over to Micah. This episode of Clockwise is brought to you by Warby Parker. It's quality eyewear at a fraction of the usual price. Warby Parker was founded by four friends who believe that your glasses shouldn't cost more than your iPhone. Preach it. This means that Warby Parker are able to provide high quality, good looking prescription glasses at a much fairer price. And if you're thinking that buying glasses online might be difficult, well, think again, because Warby Parker makes it so easy to do with their free home try-on program. You can order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days with no obligation to buy. Shipping is also free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. And guess what? When you pick your favorite pair, they can even call your doctor if you're not sure what your prescription is. Warby Parker glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses that all include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And not only that, but for every pair you buy, this is so awesome, a pair of glasses is distributed to someone in need. I just had my home try-on kit not too terribly long ago. I uh, got all gussied and glammed up and took some photos and sent them around to friends and family saying, okay, help me figure this out. And I actually just, uh, a good friend of mine who's been who's just on the show, Tori Folk, uh, she was just sending me photos of her Warby Parker try-on kit. We loved it. We had a good time. We both picked out the glasses that we love. And uh, that's all because of this home try-on program where you can try many different ones. And in fact, she ordered two home try-on kits to find the glasses that were for her. So there's plenty out there for you to try out. Listeners of this show can head to warbyparker.com slash clockwise, and you're going to get a free home try-on kit today. Now, once you've done that, you can check out the Warby Parker app. If you've got an iPhone 10, there's a new Find Your Fit feature that uses the True Depth camera on the iPhone 10, and you can you can try out 12 different frames that best fit your face. So it's time to upgrade your glasses experience. You go to warbyparker.com slash clockwise to order your free home try on today. Thank you so much to Warby Parker for your support of our show. And now it's time for my topic. So there is a little bit in the news about iOS 11.4 disabling the lightning connector after seven days of no password. So, you know, law enforcement will sometimes use these tools that you plug in the iPhone and it tries a bunch of different passwords or tries to circumvent the encryption to get at the data in your phone. But if a phone sits for seven days without a password being typed in, then all you can do with that lightning port is charge the device. I'm curious about your thoughts on this particular feature, whether we want to see more of these features, less of these features. Aline, we'll start with you. I have questions, I think. So first and foremost, I want my my data and my private information to be kept private. Um, I am 100% for this kind of technology existing and being implemented um, because y- you never know who's going to get your hand, their hands on it. Law enforcement is supposed to be the only p- people who, who can do this, but you know, if, if law enforcement gets that technology, it's also going to get out to, you know, other people and so i um i i am supportive of this i i think it's a good good thing but i have questions about like what happens if you i don't know are in a, a medically induced coma for two weeks and then do you have to get a new phone is there do you take it to the apple store and say 
here's my like documentation proving that um, this is my phone and I really need to be able to plug it into a computer. Um, the developer documentation states that um, that the device must be connected um, via lightning co- connector um, while unlocked um, at least once a week in order for this feature to work and I'm or in order to maintain the ability to plug it into your computer um, and have it sync and that kind of thing. And so I'm wondering, is that like a typo in the developer documentation? Um, Do I have to start plugging it into my computer once a week? Because that's not something I actually do in order to to retain that functionality for when I do need to plug it into my computer. I kind of have some questions about how this is implemented. And then what are the consequences if someone can't use their phone for seven days for whatever reason? So this is always kind of a cat and mouse game, right? Like as it's always been in the past with like jailbreakers and and people who would like to unlock their phones, um, you get this sort of constantly probing, looking for security vulnerabilities and then finding ways to exploit them. Now, on the one hand, that's good because the more security vulnerabilities they find, uh, the more vulnerabilities there are for Apple to patch and make the devices even more secure. So, you know, in, in that sense, the sort of back and forth has benefits. Uh, and so... To me, this just is the latest in the long line of like, we're going to find a way to get around, uh, you know, some circumvention that that people have come up with. And so uh, I'm okay with it. I I think if it's just a matter of entering your passcode, you know, once in a week, basically, uh, most of us do that. And and it counts biometrics. It sounds like Face ID and Touch ID as well. So most people would never run into this. There are certainly edge cases, as Alina is saying, where you might end up um, sort of trapped without a phone that you can connect to a computer. But at that point, it is unclear, and if you just have to like essentially re-authenticate uh, in order to activate it again, then I, I don't see any problem with it. This sounds like a pretty good way to do it. My biggest concern would be uh, that you know seven days might be too long for some <laughs> cases uh, if your phone is in possession of someone that wants mm-hmm. to maliciously access it. That might be a little too generous a period, but I guess we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I think the idea that this is like an endless cat and mouse game is is definitely accurate. You know, we didn't know about this gray key um, hardware until somewhat recently. I think that's the last you know month or so this has come to light. But clearly there are other ways that governments or spy agencies or, uh, you know, whatever can get into, into people's phones without their knowledge or permission. I think this is Apple trying to head off some of that uh, in a new way, just like it's it's, you know, done so many things with with uh, encryption keys and uh, even prompting people now to set up a six-digit pin instead of a four-digit pin which is much more secure uh it's just another step along that that path and uh, i'm all for it i think that that our devices should be private and and not have back doors in them because you know lean like you said once one of those things is opened uh there's no way to control it's no there's no way to say hey only the good guys have this This is apple's whole argument in the san bernardino fbi deal a couple years ago saying we're not going to build a back door for the fbi because that will become the most targeted piece of code on the planet and apple itself would be at risk building that because that's going to be stolen and when it is then all sorts of shady characters. I mean, seven days, you know, maybe that's too long, maybe that's too short. It's all in the details. But I think that the uh, the direction Apple's moving is the right one here. 
Excellent. Uh, excellent answers all around. I mean, I pretty much agree with everybody. There's uh, a lot of a lot of questions, but I love that Apple is paying attention to this stuff. There are arguments on both sides of the table, but just, sim- just like on iPhone 10, how you can press all three buttons, uh, the, the side button and the volume up and volume down button to disable Face ID, and I believe Touch ID as well for... Um, for non iPhone 10 devices, uh, those all these features are with users in mind instead of any sort of organizations or companies or uh, entities. And so Apple does pay at least some attention to its users, as we know, and I appreciate that about them. So let's go ahead and move on to our last topic, which comes from Aline. So this week, Microsoft announced that they'll be increasing the amount of revenue they share with developers on its platforms um, up to 85 to 95, 95% in most cases, up from 70%. Um, there are exceptions and, and that kind of thing. But for the most part, they're increasing the share that developers will get. Um, what are your thoughts on this development? And do you think Google and Apple will follow suit? Because they also... Um, share 70% with developers. Boy, would I like to see that happen, um, but I'm incredibly skeptical of it. It does seem in some ways like the direction the industry is moving that way. Apple finally instituted like sort of a sliding scale, I think, for subscriptions. If you have people, uh, customers who subscribe for a year, then the cut on that drops to uh, Apple Antics 15% instead of 30 And so I think a lot of people would like to see that across the board because 30% is, is a lot. But at the same time, Apple has made a huge deal about their services revenue in recent quarters. They want to double the size of their business by like 2020 or whatever, and they're already gotten pretty close there. And certainly nobody ever doubled the size of their revenue by taking a half of what they used to take. So I am pretty skeptical that they will make a a big sweeping change like that but i am hopeful that perhaps they will expand the cases in which they will take smaller cuts so we might move towards that direction more gradually as apple you know expands its uh, its offerings and, and has different models so that's kind of what i'm hoping for but I'm, I'm skeptical that they would back down on that yeah so this is like so many things in life this i think is more complicated than it seems uh because what the situation Microsoft is in and the situation Apple is in is very different. Microsoft is trying to draw people to the platform. Apple doesn't have that problem. But I think Apple should totally follow suit because developers and Apple have a a back and forth relationship. Unlike almost anything we see in the tech industry, they really do need each other. Apple needs developers on the iPhone and iPad to make it successful. Developers are on the iPod and iPhone because those app stores are successful. Like it's very cyclical, and this is a is a great feel good thing. Yes, it's going to cost Apple some money. They can afford it. I think they should. They should eat it, and I think that they should. Uh, they should match this. They should be aggressive in this area because developers are you know reliant on these stores, and if you keep them happy, then they'll they'll stick around. I I really like that that outlook, and it would be uh, fantastic if if Apple followed suit. Uh, Dan, you were talking a little bit about the money stuff there, and uh, I just transcribed Apple's financial call uh, that just took place. And one of the things that we continue to notice is, as we've been talking about, the way that the services business continues to grow for Apple. And I just 
with with as much attention as they pay uh, to that during these these calls, um, I think it could be a while before we see that number change because they're what is it like a Fortune three hundred company yeah, now something or something like that, like yeah. that? Um, and I think they would like for that to continue to grow, especially as they continue the stock buyback program. Um, and so it may be some time, but eventually we could get to a place where okay. Our services business, which is split between Apple Pay, App Store, iTunes, and iCloud storage, and a few other things, um, when we get to a point, then maybe that's whenever we see this change happen. As for Google, I should probably pay more attention to what Google does in the first place, because I can't say, like, I don't know what their numbers look like, so I don't know um, if if I could see this being a thing for them. I just see Google... Uh, also having a lot of money and so why not google J- jump on board yeah basically um that's where i am too with with all of it i feel like um you know developers are really struggling to make it for the most part i i think that this would be amazing for developers um in the apple ecosystem if if apple took less of a cut um i do understand like that standpoint of like trying to grow and all of that kind of thing but if if we get to the point where the app store is hemorrhaging developers and apps are going unupdated and, and unnoticed, um, then Apple's going to have a problem. And I don't know that that will necessarily happen, um, but I do worry about the apps that I use and love and want to stick around. And I worry about the developers and how long they'll actually be able to keep this a sustainable thing for them. And so I really, like, I have my fingers crossed, but I don't think we're going to see this announcement at WWDC next month. <laughs> seems no. seems unlikely. Yeah. But right now we must wrap up this week's show by thanking our guest, Stephen Hackett. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great show every week. Annalene Sims, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all the time we have for this week. Until next time, remember, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody.